Hi, everybody. This is the White House, of course, from a side view. Right next to the White House is the West Wing, where all the senior administration officials have offices. The Oval Office is there. And this is the White House and the West Wing and some cocaine. Uh, yeah, you know the story by now. Uh, still investigating. We all suspect, we all pretty much know it's hunters. However, there are some other possibilities. It might be theoretical, might be a one billionth of a chance, but I think there's a chance. Everything is in context. My mother used to, she would give us a hard time sometimes and she would say to us, I don't know what's wrong with you young people. You think you just fell out of a coconut tree? <laughs> you exist in the context of all in which you live and what came before you. Uh, okay, so um, it would explain a lot. Uh, probably not her. Again, I'm going with Hunter. Uh, I'm also going with this. We're not getting a straight story from the White House again. That's not the kind of operation that Joe Biden runs as president. And, well, why would he? Why would he be straight with the American people now when he hasn't been his entire political career? From time to time, it's important to remind everybody about how this guy arrived on the national scene. I mean, in a big way. The first time the whole country got a look at this guy when he was running for president the first time, we were disgusted, quite frankly. What law school did you attend and where did you place in that class? And the other question oh, is, could you quickly, I, I think we I, I think I probably have a much higher IQ than you do, I suspect. I went to law school on a full academic scholarship, the only one in my, in my class uh, to have a full academic scholarship. In the first year in law school, I decided I didn't want to be in law school and ended up in the bottom two-thirds of my class and then decided I wanted to stay, went back to law school, and in fact ended up in the top half of my class. I won the international moot court competition. I was the outstanding student in the political science department at the end of my year. I graduated with three degrees from undergraduate school and 165 credits, only needed 123 credits, and I'd be delighted to sit down and compare my IQ to yours if you'd like, Frank. Ten lies in, we asked, 46 seconds. Wow. He's got a problem. <laughs> That's a problem. He said that stuff when he was 45 years old back in 1987. You think he's changed? You think he's grown? He hasn't. Of course not. And, well, the consequences, we're feeling them. And so is his family. My son, like a lot of people, like a lot of people we know at home, had a drug problem. He's overtaken it. He's, he's, he's fixed it. He's worked on it. And I'm proud of him. That answer about Hunter wasn't about love for Hunter. It was indignation that that question, anyone would dare ask him about it. He has a very primitive kind of authoritarian view of what a president is and what they're entitled to do. So let's go to Hunter, all right? Uh, maybe you've seen the video by now. Those who are experienced in these matters see a person who is high on cocaine, the sweating, the kind of manic mannerisms, there's something going on. And he's living at the White House, essentially. I mean, getting on and off of Marine One uh, with his dad, going on foreign trips. This guy has a problem, and Joe Biden, the president, just might be in denial. Look, we've seen it. We've seen Hunter use the crack cocaine. We've seen it. We've seen him with, well, prostitutes all over the world. We've seen him with a gun waving it around totally irresponsibly. We've seen him introduce mysterious businessmen to his father at Cafe Milano. And Hunter, 
to his partial credit, has owned up to some of this stuff. I mean, I went one time for 13 days without sleeping and smoking crack and drinking vodka exclusively throughout that entire time. Wow. All right. That's uh, that's admitting you got a problem. He's had a problem since he was eight years old. It's in his book. That's when he took his first drink, when he knew he wasn't supposed to. Uh, when you're an addict, from what I read, you tend to lie, cheat, and steal. It's kind of inconceivable to me that he hasn't been breaking the law a lot, given his age, given how long he's had a problem. And also this, that he's never felt even mildly afraid or intimidated of his father. You've said your dad always saw the good in you through all of this. Was there ever a time when you thought, okay, there's no way he's going to give up on me. I've done it now. Never, never, not once. Wow, what an arrangement. I lost my baseball glove once and I thought about running away from home. A little bit of discipline is actually a good thing in families. And I'm getting the sense that he did not have much of that at all. I mean, look at what we know about him. Look at what he's about to cop to. And look at the way he's treated by his dad overseas in Ireland, where he has no business being. The fact that I'm here with my sister, Valerie, and my youngest son, Hunter Biden. Stand up, guys. I'm proud of you. This is not pride. This is in your face. I'm powerful. Don't mess with us. Don't mess with the Bidens. Joe has been heard saying something similar to that. What's the deal again? Plead guilty to uh, two misdemeanors. After all we know, after all we've seen, after the laptop, after everything, no jail time whatsoever. Um, Big, powerful people are protecting Hunter Biden as they have throughout his entire life. Bill Clinton got him into law school. Yes, Bill Clinton called the dean of the law school, got him in. And now his father is the president of the United States, and he personally appointed who? Merrick Garland. It's been this way pretty much forever for the Bidens. Uh, Hunter is a young man and and now as a middle-aged man, hooked up and protected every step of the way. I would really like to get the perspective of Jill Biden, the, the stepmom, the other night at the White House. She seemed uh, kind of annoyed, kind of stressed, actually, about the whole situation. You know, Jill, I have no beef with Jill Biden. She was actually married to another man before she met Joe Biden, yeah? Jill Biden, beautiful woman, was married to a prominent businessman in Delaware by the name of uh, Bill Stevenson. He owned a place called the Stone Balloon and a world-famous pub. And music acts from all over the world would come to this place, a special place to play. A couple of years ago, back in 2020, Bill actually thought the record should be set straight about, well, how Joe came into the picture and uh, met Jill. So you were friends with Joe Biden? Oh, yeah. Right before the election in 72, Jill, Joe, Nelia, and I were in his kitchen. How do you forget that? Stevenson says his first inkling something was up came when Jill refused to go with him to meet Bruce Springsteen, who was booked to appear at the Stone Balloon. He said, uh, Jill asked me to keep an eye on the boys. And I just thought to the back of my mind, hmm. Wow. What's next? One day, he says a man came into his bar and asked him to pay damages for a fender bender that involved Jill. He looks at me and he says, oh, she wasn't driving. 
I said, her beloved Corvette, she wasn't driving it? He goes, Senator Biden was driving it. And I went, what? Yeah, so that is obviously not the official story that the Bidens tell. Uh, this is the real deal here, though, what he just said. Uh, the Bidens, uh, the, they know otherwise, and you can kind of pick that up in this interview that Jill did with Piers Morgan. Fascinated by this story that he basically got his eyes on you when he saw a picture of you in an advertisement. Is this true? Well, part of it is true. I had met him uh, once before, and um, but we were in a crowd, and it was at a fundraiser, and... Um, so then I guess he saw my picture somewhere and he said, oh, now that's the kind of girl I'd like to date. And I knew his brother. So his brother said, oh, I know her because I was in college at the time with and his brother was there. And so uh, Frank called me and uh, or got my number and Joe called and said, you know, this is Joe Biden. And um, would you like to go out? And uh, where was your first date? We went to Philadelphia to the movies. Do you remember the film? No, I don't. Right there. I know that's not true. I know where my parents went uh, on their first date. They went to the movies, too. They saw Psycho. OK, everybody remembers the movie, especially in that era. So it seemed like for a while, Delaware was not big enough for the Bidens and Mr. Stevenson. It seemed like the Bidens, Joe and his brothers, weren't too comfortable with Bill. And soon Bill found himself in, well, some trouble with the federal government. Take a look at this. In 1982, a guy who never had a problem with the law, on April 21, 1982, defendants were arraigned in this court for failing to make payments to the account for the first quarter of 1982. These defendants are William Stevenson, Bill, the guy we just saw, and his brother George Stevenson, have been indicted on nine counts of failing to deposit taxes withheld from employees' wages in a separate bank account in trust for the United States as required under blah, 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 blah. Uh, this made the news. And when it was settled, it actually made the news as well. Uh, William and George Stevenson were accused of criminal liability for the $8,266 in unmade deposits. That's not a lot of money, by the way. And let's take a look at those dates one more time. April 21, 1982, they were arraigned in this court for failing to make payments for the first quarter of 1982. <laughs> arraigned in April, first quarter. What is the first quarter of 1982? January, February, and March. So they missed those payments, apparently, right? They missed those payments, and they're arraigned in federal court in April? That's insane. <laughs> that is insane. And the, the charges were first filed April 8th. So Joe Biden in the 1980s is the big man in Delaware. And it looked like he had a big grudge against Jill Biden's ex-husband. Hmm? I mean, let's put this side by side. Hunter, we know about his situation, right? $2.2 million unpaid taxes. The feds investigate for five years. And this Bill Stevenson, $8,000 unpaid taxes, allegedly an eight day investigation and they haul him into federal court and indict him. That's kind of insane. And I wonder if Joe Biden, you know, as the big man in Delaware, did they take care of him, take this guy out? I mean, it's totally conceivable, isn't it? It seems to be how he's running the country right now. Donald Trump 
in trouble over minuscule issues, in my opinion. Bill Stevenson, we've seen this happen before. And Joe is, I'm sorry, but he's dumb enough and he thinks he's so powerful. And I guess he is powerful now. He's the president of the United States. He has been known to say some idiotic things, though, over the years, dishonest things and just flat out stupid things that suggest to me he's the kind of guy who would abuse power. He told Kitty Kelly, a very prominent journalist at the time, 1974, he's a sitting United States senator. He defines politics as power, she writes, and he says, and whether you like it or not, young lady, he says, leaning over his desk to shake a finger at me, us cruddy politicians can take away that First Amendment of yours if we want to. A politician can take away a constitutional right. I've seen signs that he still thinks that. And if he thinks he can pull that off, maybe he thinks he can lock up a president of the United States or get some guy who used to be married to his wife in trouble. Does that sound like Joe Biden? Hmm? You bet it does. We'll be right back. Disturbing body camera video shows a Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputy slamming a woman to the ground. And you can hear bystanders shouting for the deputy to stop. And we have to warn you, this video is disturbing to watch. This body cam video showing a deputy throwing a black woman to the ground. All of it is problematic. And I'm certain that this is not the first time that deputy did that. He did it too easily. He was unbothered. Uh, sorry, I don't agree with him. I've seen the video and the media has this kind of knee jerk response always. The cops must have made a mistake and uh, a woman, especially a black woman, must be in the right. So this is in Lancaster, California. Cops were responding to a report of shoplifting and an apparent assault of a security guard. They show up and are directed to these two individuals, a husband and wife team, apparently. One is placed under arrest and now it's the wife's turn. What happened? No, you can't touch Stop. me. You can't touch Stop. me. You can't touch me. You can't touch me. Police are actually allowed to use force when they are affecting an arrest. Uh, we want them to have that authority. It's not always pretty. Uh, it's not definitely pleasant, but next. Get down on the ground. Get on the ground. Stop. I don't give Stop. Stop. Get on the ground. She's not complying. And we don't know what happened before this. We don't know what happened in the store. We know the allegations, but what happened in the store? What kind of threat was she posing? It's okay. It's still legal for now for police to arrest people, right? And she's resisting arrest. Next. Stop! Stop, Stop. and you get punched in the you face. You punch me and you're going you're gonna to get sued, too. You already got sued. I got it Temperature on camera. Stop. I Turn got around. It on camera. Get your neck off my, off my, I can't breathe. Hey, we're in a fight at the window. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. That has become a political rallying cry. Now, it's not true. She can breathe. Again, being arrested is not pleasant. It's also not pleasant when you assault a security guard, as she allegedly may have done, or the shoplifting or all that stuff. What happens next? Stop manhandling me. It's an arrest. You're going to get manhandled. It's... It's, we want the cops to have this ability. They need it. This is, just because it's on TV doesn't mean it's wrong. Just because it's viral doesn't mean it's what everybody says it is. Next. 
I, somebody I know said, well, shouldn't have used the mace. How do, how do you know? How do they know? <laughs> have you ever tried to arrest somebody who did not want to be arrested, who's strong and resisting? That's a tool. It's non-lethal. The I can't breathe stuff, I'm sorry. That's political. And I think, folks, they're looking for money. They're looking for a payout. And where would they have gotten that idea that if you start saying something like, I can't breathe, you can make a lot of money? Well, let's take a look. Uh, Yes, the Floyd family got $27 million. Not saying that they, well, I think that's, that was excessive. In New York City, how much did they pay out in recent years? $121 million for police misconduct last year. That's the most in five years. And it's double, all right? Double. They double the amount they're putting out. Police departments, especially those run by Democrat mayors, are giving away money almost as political payouts. What does this do for rank-and-file law enforcement? This makes videos like we just saw, the community siding, not with the cops, but with the person on the ground and saying, oh, this viral video is the worst thing I ever saw. They don't take a deep breath and say, you know what? Actually, it's not the worst thing that ever happened. And maybe these guys did not make any mistakes. Those viral videos, we're going to get fewer and fewer people who want to become cops. I don't see anything wrong in that. Then again, I'm not a trained law enforcement officer. It is just my strong sense. It's also my, well, I know this. These guys risk their lives all the time. First responders, cops, firefighters. You hear we lost two firefighters in Newark, New Jersey. A horrible fire on a cargo ship. Very unique environment for the firefighters. Uh, we lost two. Augusto Acaba, 45 years old, and Wayne Bear Brooks Jr., 49 years old. Two heroes and... Uh, our thoughts and prayers are with the family. Let's think about that. Let's remember. Let's follow up. And it's still okay to say it's okay to pray, right? Not really. Just moments ago, the fire chief identified them as 45-year-old Augusto Akabu and 49-year-old Wayne Brooks Jr. The thoughts are with their families. Now, it's fine. I'm not, she said thoughts, and I'm not blaming her, but this is a thing. Thoughts and prayers, prayers that's somehow been stigmatized. Like, that's not, that's not adequate, and you shouldn't even be talking about prayers. Have you seen it? It is time for us to move beyond thoughts and prayers. Enough. Enough thoughts and prayers. Our thoughts and prayers are not even close to enough. The best you can offer us is your thoughts and prayers. Yeah, so they've actually made people self-conscious about saying the prayers part in thoughts and prayers. And it's worked. It's not done, at least in media. Thoughts and prayers, no, no. Don't make it religious. Just uh, don't make it about God. Just, uh, just talk about your brain. Our thoughts go out to them and the crew. Our thoughts are going out to him. Our thoughts uh, go to... Uh, the family members. Isn't that sad? The secularization of this. Thoughts and prayers. Let's bring it back and let's pray too. How does that sound? All right. New York City. We have a mayor that the media are still in love with, but there are signs that they're falling out of love with Eric Adams. 
New York City has had all kinds of larger-than-life mayors, but never anyone quite like Eric Adams. Dapperly dressed, with a pierced ear and dramatic life story, he says and does things that a lot of other Democratic politicians would not. Adams is nothing if not confident. Watching him walk down the street, you'd never notice the weight of the city's problems on his shoulders. All right, so uh, they love this guy, but they notice something. Take a look at this. These, uh, this picture that he's been going around with of a, of a great cop who was killed in the line of duty back in 1987. Eric has been telling a tall tale that somehow he's had this picture in his wallet uh, for the past couple of decades, and uh, it's never left his wallet because he cares that much about this fallen officer. Uh, it turns out not to be the case, but he says it is. I carry around a picture of Robert Venable, my close friend that was shot uh, several years ago uh, when during my early days of policing. And I always have Robert's picture. Uh, the pain never dissipates. <laughs> all right. This is uh, his effort to make it all about him. The New York Times seems to be turning on Eric Adams. Uh, they say this whole thing is probably phony. Take a look at this. The weathered photo of Officer Venable had not actually spent decades in the mayor's wallet. It had been created by employees in the mayor's office in the days after Mr. Adams claimed to have been carrying it in his wallet. The employees were instructed to create a photo of Officer Venable, according to a person familiar with the request. A picture of the officer was found on Google. It was printed in black and white and made to look worn, as if the mayor had been carrying it for some time, including by splashing some coffee on it, and said the person who spoke on the condition of anonymity for fear of retribution. Wow, huh? That photograph. They made it look old on purpose so he could brag that he had it in his wallet for all these decades and to remind people, yes, I was a police officer too. Well, I have a reminder that he was a police officer and not a very good police officer. A crazy video that he made about himself back when he was uh, a state senator. Watch. Hi. I'm New York State Senator Eric Adams, and for 22 years, I wore a bulletproof vest and stood on the street corners and protected children and families in the city of New York. Wow, I'm a hero. Just ask me. Next. I will show you how to search a room to ensure that you remove illegal handguns and other contraband from your home. What I would like to show here is to empower parents on how to search a room inside their home. It's imperative that you should know what's inside your household. Wow. The music, apparently, uh, they thought it was cool. Ready? Take notes here. He's going to tell you how to search your own child's house, uh, room. And no one can state that you can't search a room in your own home. You write the Constitution. There are no First Amendment rights inside your household. All right, it's the Fourth Amendment he's talking about, but that's okay. Next. So if you come to a room like this, you can start out, I always recommend to start out in a periodic fashion so you'll be used to going through the room to look at um, the various items in the room. You can look in the jewelry box, a jewelry box of this nature, maybe a simple jewelry box, but if you look through it closely, you don't know what your child may be hiding. For instance, a gun could be hidden, a small caliber weapon could be hidden inside a jewelry box. Look at the various colognes and perfumes and photos and pinches. 
All right, the jewelry box. My child might have a gun in the jewelry box. Thank you. This law enforcement experience is priceless. Next. You should always, when your child brings in his popular knapsack with many different locations, look through it to see what exactly is your child carrying in addition to a book. Something simple as a crack pipe, a used crack pipe. Could he have found it on the street? That's quite possible. But this is a, a discussion piece where you should start speaking with him to find out what is he doing with it. These are great tips for safety and just being an all-around great parent. Thank you, Eric. Next. Look at picture frames behind them, cameras. Try to determine what's, what's taking place. Behind a picture frame, you can find bullets. What does that mean to find bullets? Does it mean your child is, is carrying a gun? No. Where there's smoke, there's possible fire. Where there's a bullet, there's possibly a gun. You should engage in the conversation and find out what are they doing, doing with the item. All right, I should engage in a conversation to find out what they are doing with the item, which is also known as a bullet. This is not Saturday Night Live. This is not some spoof. He actually made this thing, and now he's the mayor of the most populous city in the country. It's really pathetic. Wow. And how disrespectful was he to that family, huh? Bragging that he's been mourning that officer for all these years when it was just a scam. Thank you to the New York Times for revealing that. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Tony Marino, host of the Newsmax Daily Podcast, your daily news bulletin of Newsmax's top headlines, along with commentary from our hosts and experts. You can learn more about all of the free podcasts, including Newsmax Daily, Rob Carson, and Jerry Callahan at Newsmax.com slash listen. Well, everyone seems to be smoking pot these days. It's essentially been legalized across America, and I don't think we've even begun to really consider the ramifications. Have you noticed also mass shootings, but I don't see too much white supremacy. What I do see, transgender individuals, uh, the accused shooter, time and time again, the accused shooters. We'd like to bring in Nick, I'm sorry, Luke Niferatos. He's the executive vice president of Smart Approaches to Marijuana, and Jamie Michelle, founder, Gays Against groomers. Jamie, thank you for being here, both of you. Uh, real quick, have you noticed that there are an unusually, it seems like a pattern, seems like a trend, more and more transgender individuals being involved in these mass shootings? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a pattern here and there is an uptick. Um, I, I think it really boils down to cross-sex hormones uh, are dangerous. Um, they have side effects, which uh, you know, can lead to some of the behavior that we're seeing now compiled on top of other mental health issues that are clearly present um, as well. And, you know, they're presenting themselves in these crazy ways now. And, and sadly, we're seeing other people fall victim to these uh, drugs by proxy, you know, being being shot by these people. And it's very sad. By the way, when it comes to uh, uh, puberty blockers and these hormones, do we know, do you know, being that you have been fighting this, at least when it comes to children, uh, what are the side effects? Well, yeah, I mean, puberty blockers, first of all, I don't like using their language. You know, that's candy-coated language. They are chemical castration drugs. They sterilize children. Uh, they make them infertile. Uh, those are some of the side effects. But on top of that, um, you know, there's also brain swelling. 
vision loss. A lot of these kids, uh, very, very young into adulthood, are getting osteoporosis, brittle bones, um, because, you know, they're stunted. Their growth is stunted. That's essentially what these are. And the fact is, is that there are no long-term studies on the effects that these drugs will have on developing bodies. So, you know, they're using these children as lab rats, and it's disgusting, and it is going to be viewed like the lobotomy craze was uh, a few decades ago. All right, Luke, taking a step away from the transgender issue, I'd like to just on marijuana, a lot of folks think it's it relaxes me, it's anti-anxiety, it does all these wonderful things. I don't really personally think they know what they're talking about. Can you speak a little bit about, is there a connection to violence, to violent behavior, psychosis? Yeah, well, we just saw a recent study just come out literally two months ago. They looked at uh, excuse me, millions of patients uh, in Denmark, uh, people in Denmark, and what they found was a strong link between marijuana use, particularly heavy marijuana use, and psychosis, schizophrenia, um, which that includes, uh, in many cases, violent behavior. Um, we are seeing marijuana as a con common denominator with a number of the mass shootings. I I'm from Colorado. Um, you look at Columbine High School, marijuana was prevalent in the in the imagery and the themes of the, the students who um, you know perpetrated that horrible offense. And when we're looking at other uh, mass shootings as well, we have seen this drug pop up time and again. So I don't think we can discount it. I think there's a lot more we need to research. But what we do know is today's marijuana is nothing like the marijuana of 30 years ago. It's super potent. And what we're seeing with super potent marijuana is that it is causing more mental illness issues and more psychotic breaks. So we really need to slow this train down. All the, the rhetoric around this being no big deal and helping people be chill, uh, that's not what today's high potency marijuana is doing at all. And how do they pull that off, those who advocate marijuana? Like we went from the war on drugs, we had a drug czar, you know, the just say no campaign uh, to everybody's doing it. And I mean, just about everybody. Again, businessmen in the morning on the street. Uh, how did that happen? Well, it's just one thing, money. Uh, once people figured out they could make a buck off of pushing this drug, um, they would say basically anything they could to get people to buy into it. And that's something we really have to be clear about. Um, this is big tobacco. This is big alcohol. These are addiction giants that are making a lot of money off of getting people addicted to their other substances. And now they're trying to set uh, that same exact playbook with marijuana. We shouldn't let them do it. I mean, the fact that we have pot companies using Sesame Street characters like Cookie Monster to advertise their pot edibles and using Girl Scout flavors uh, for their pot br uh, brands and blends, um, that is just an outrage. And, and, this, and this industry is getting away with it, just like tobacco got away with right. Joe Camel, candy-flavored cigarettes, and all that jazz. Jamie Michelle, does the media have a major, uh, I, think, I think they have a lot of responsibility here. They, they keep supplying us and by us, I mean everybody, and that means transgender individuals with this whole idea that there's a genocidal campaign against transgender individuals, that there's a war against them. I don't think that's true, but I hear it all the time. It seems like misinformation that actually might be making a difference in a really negative, horrible way. Oh, yeah. I mean, what wouldn't you do if, if you thought there was a genocide happening against your people? I mean, it's a complete lie. The only people that are at risk in this country uh, within, you know, in terms of the LGBTQIA++ ABC group uh, are the children that it is attacking. Uh, and, and I just I absolutely hate to see this trans genocide myth go on. And I think that it is radicalizing people that are already mentally unwell.
Um, you know, and, and on his his point that he made before, I just want to say, you know, this is a total parallel to what we see putting kids on, uh, making them lifelong medical patients and grabbing them as children. I mean, it's all about money. You know, the, the motivations here are profits from, from big pharma. And, you know, I believe eventually the normalization of pedophilia, which I think we're getting pretty close to. If you can consent to changing your body forever and chopping body parts off, what can't you consent to? I mean, as a child, you know? Wow. It's, it, it's scary stuff. Well, I'm glad both of you are in the fight uh, for normalcy. Uh, Jamie and Michelle, Gays Against Groomers, you guys are amazing. And you too, Luke, uh, from Smart Approaches to Marijuana. We thank you both, and we'll be right back. Well, Sound of Freedom. Have you heard about this movie? It's awesome. I saw it when it came out uh, the first day, July 4th. It's in theaters right now. It tackles a very tough subject, child sex trafficking, which is happening all over the world. It's happening everywhere. And, uh, well, unfortunately, America, big consumer of, uh, of child sex. It, it's a major problem. But the movie is so good, so good. And guess what? Hollywood has not been really aggressive in promoting it. Actually, folks in Hollywood don't want us to see this movie, but take a look. Number one on release day. So far, almost 15 million in ticket sales and increasing. We'd like to bring in Jordan Harmon. He's the co-founder and president of Angel Studio that made this movie uh, possible. Uh, Jordan Harmon, congratulations on the film and welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Was I right? My sense is, and you know, Mel Gibson and a couple of other people, for whatever reason, the powers that be in Hollywood are not enthusiastic about this, and there are some other influential people who don't want this movie seen. Why would that be? You know, I mean, for, for us, we look at this, and this is, when you're looking at a $150 billion industry, and that's how big this industry is in terms of trafficking, and to put that into perspective, that's like the entire NBA, the entire NHL, the, the entire, like all the major sports teams combined, plus a couple other large industries, and you're barely getting there. So when you take that into account, there's obviously going to be opposition when you're when you're trying to promote something that will hopefully end this. Because in our mind, Angel's mission is to tell stories that amplify light. And in order for us to make an impact on this horrible atrocity, which is child trafficking, we have to bring awareness to it. People have to understand how big it is and how uh, important it is that they, they step up to the plate and they help us solve this problem. Well, uh, I was in a theater and people were crying and taking a picture at the end. I, I, I cried right along with you. <laughs> I, it was so it was so powerful. Uh, so Jim Caviezel plays a uh, Department of Homeland Security officer who's fighting pedophilia in America. But uh, all the children are coming from south of the border and he decides to kind of change his life and Anyway, here's a here's a scene. Let's take a look. Oh yeah, that uh, that's a old picture. You know how kids are these days; they, they just grow up so fast. That's him. No, no, no. I, I'm just going off. Put your hands in the wheel. Do not go. I'm. I'm I'm his uncle. You just ask him. Just ask him. I'm his uncle. Wow. Uh, and that's the moment. We don't want to give too much away. Um, 
let me ask you, I, I keep hearing, oh, it was a low-budget movie, a low-budget movie. Uh, it seemed like state-of-the-art production to me, and it was so well done. This is, this, this is a, you know, a major motion picture. What, was it low-budget, actually, technically? In terms of Hollywood standards, sure, it could have been considered low budget. You know, they're not spending 200 to 300 million dollars on films. But, you know, it was uh, when you look at the film, uh, the, the the budget looks like three to four times what they actually spent on it. And that's that's a testament to Alejandro Monteverde, Eduardo Verastegui and, and their team and what they put together in terms of um, making every dollar count. And uh, and so it really does feel like a, a summer blockbuster, a thriller. Um, it has so many elements that just keep you on the edge of your seat the entire time. But it comes with a message that has a, a punch with it that helps people get to the end and feel the gravity of what's happening, but also feel hope in that they can do something and they can have an impact. So Jim Caviezel uh, just rescued that kid. Um, from that guy, and later they're having a conversation, and uh, we're going to play that clip now. Yo me amo, Tim. Tim Ballard. Pero me pobrecima, Timoteo. Timoteo? Ese es mi nombre en español, no? Wow, the kid is great. Jim Caviezel, so intense. Uh, hey, you mentioned it was it's a multi-billion-dollar industry, you know, sex trafficking children, but those are like dark interests, right? They have influence over Hollywood. They, that that money finds its way into, you know, green light this picture, don't green light that picture, distribute this one, not that one. You know, it, it, for me, I I I would imagine for a hundred and fifty billion dollar industry, they probably have interest in in so many different industries, mm. and so. The um, it's 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 hard to say like oh this is the one that they're you know saying no to and this one they're saying yes to but you can bet that any hundred and fifty billion dollar industry is going to make sure that their 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 profits are preserved in any way they can and so for us we're looking at this and we're going you know that that scene is so powerful to me and I'm so glad you showed it because a lot of people think that a lot of things in this movie are dramatized and there is some dramatization but that actually happened there was actually a little boy who had a necklace that said Timoteo on it. And he gave it to Tim Ballard. And um, and so it's such a yeah. beautiful story. On, and it's based on a real hero, someone who, who risked his life, risked his career, risked his pen, everything, put everything on the line. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's, it's, it's an incredible story that everyone needs to see. Absolutely. Everybody needs to see it. And the movie is truly moving. It moves you to do stuff. It actually moves you to do something very specific at the end of the movie. You got to see it, folks. It's called Sound of Freedom. And you will not regret seeing this film. Uh, Jordan Harmon, co-founder and president of Angel Studio. Thank you. Cast and crew, please thank them as well. And uh, thank you again. We'll be right back. I switched. I switched. I switched. I switched to Newsmax. Newsmax. 
Newsmax. Have you made the switch? You bet I did. My whole family switched. Millions are switching to Newsmax. You should too. There's a wonderful moment for religious freedom in this country. It feels great. I remember the day of the arguments in court and just really being moved by, you know, the presence of the Lord in the, there in, in the inner sanctum of the Supreme Court. It was a very special moment to be representing the Lord in that situation. Amazing. That's Mr. Groff on our show a few days back, the mail carrier from Pennsylvania. And all he wanted from the post office, he was working there for many years. He wanted the day off on Sunday so he could go to church. And they said no, no. So ultimately he sued and he won nine to zero. Nine Supreme Court justices agreed with him and didn't agree with the post office. Hey, hey, you're the post office. Make arrangements. It's not going to hurt you very much. We thought it was great. Uh, the mainstream media, not so much. On MSNBC, they're summarizing this, this uh, situation that he won. And, well, this reporter's playing it straight. Watch. He sued under Title VII, that's federal employment discrimination law, and he said that his employer, the post office, didn't do enough to, co to accommodate him. The Supreme Court used it as an opportunity to clarify precedent that they have that's several decades old. And lower courts used to interpret that as saying anything more than like a de minimis adjustment or accommodation was an undue hardship for an employer. Now, that's no longer All the right. case. Now you got to look at now, the anchor. The employer has to accommodate she's kinda, the employee. She's, you can just tell she's not into it. Substantial cost she doesn't like that this guy itself. won. She's so thinking about what to say, right? With all nine justices going along for it. How do you, how, okay, all nine ruled one way. So how is she going to handle this, right? Watch. That's why the case is going back down to a lower court for some fact-finding. What burden would it impose on the U.S. Postal Service to accommodate Groff, who is the evangelical Christian postal worker here? Really interesting. I think the lesson to us is um, we have some more patience. Don't expect our Amazon deliveries on Sunday. Uh, Lisa Rubin, Lisa, thank you very much for joining us again. Wow. Uh She's going to be a little bit inconvenienced. That's the takeaway, huh? This one guy going to church. I don't know. I don't think she's really in favor of his religious freedom, but who knows? And it doesn't really matter. Just an anchor on MSNBC, right? We'll be right back. It's true. I am an America first, liberty loving Latino. That's why I know this country is worth fighting for. That's why The Chris Salcedo Show will always tell you the truth. The Chris Salcedo Show, for the news you need to know. Thank you very much. We'll see you tomorrow.